Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in April of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Edward Nell. Dr. Nell attained his bachelor's from Princeton University with an economics degree and his master's and PhD from Oxford University in England after being awarded the Rhodes Scholarship. Mr. Nell has taught at numerous universities in the U.S. and across the globe, including Wesleyan, Bennington College, McGill University, Bard College, and the University of Siena. He has written for many economic journals on topics such as macroeconomic theory, development, and monetary and financial analysis. He is also the author of The General Theory of Transformational Growth, Making Sense of a Changing Economy, and many, many more. We were lucky enough to join Mr. Nell in discussing the EU's response to the Greek government debt crisis, why wages haven't kept up with productivity in advanced economies, and how globalization has negatively impacted the U.S. economy. We hope you enjoy this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Ed, welcome back to Smart Talk. A pleasure. We have a, an interesting agenda. We're going to take advantage of your all-around general knowledge about economics and discuss some uh, topics of real interest. So the first one, which is really topical, and one of our former guests is knee-deep in this whole process, which is the Greek bailout loan confrontation with the uh, with the Germans, etc. What take do you have on this? Uh, you know, the, you know the situation. You know the Greeks are basically going to try to bluff their way to a better deal. How do you see this from a big macro picture, Ed? It, a lot depends on the Germans, the German banks, the German political situation, and that doesn't look very good. But the actual economics of it is not a very big problem at all. Um, austerity is the 21st century, and this is astonishing to say this, the 21st century version of debtor's prison, 17th century debtor's prison. You can't pay your debts, go to jail. How are you going to pay your debts in jail? <clears throat> you can't pay your sovereign debt the nation can't pay it. So put the nation on starvation so they can't work, they can't do anything, they can't produce anything, they have huge unemployment, and how are they going to earn the goods and money to pay the debt? You can't do it. So austerity is, I think, stupid as well as very, very cruel. Just, just, just as a matter of fact, the, there are an enormous number of excess deaths in Greece. I read somewhere that it was estimated that about 10,000 per year excess deaths. That means people who have died who under normal circumstances would not have died. This is a very, very difficult situation. It really is 
cruel as well as foolish. But that doesn't mean that the northern countries, in particular Germany, are going to agree to a deal. Um, it seems clear that the Greek people have made it clear that they will not they will not undergo any further austerity. So we are faced with um, an irresistible force and an immovable object. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this: Why would the Greeks even consent to stay in in the eurozone? Why would the Greeks even want to stay in the eurozone at this point? Why wouldn't they want to have their own currency? Wouldn't that offset? any of the so-called benefits of being in the Eurozone now? I'm not sure that it would. Um, many people, uh, including Paul Krugman, think that they would be better off with their own currency. I'm not so sure, because their currency would be very, very unstable. And an unstable currency means that you never know what the cost of your imports are going to be. You never know what your earnings from exports are going to be. Um, it's very hard to plan for uh, macroeconomic uh, eventualities, to plan for full employment, to run serious economic policies. So having your own currency is uh, helpful in some situations, but it's also not helpful. The idea of the euro was a very good one. Um, Having a large currency like this is very good, but what you have in Europe is, to put it this way, it's the Articles of Confederation. We had a situation like this in the United States right at the end of the Revolutionary War. We had the Articles of Confederation. It was a loose affiliation of independent sovereign states and the central government did not have the authority to tax. Uh, it did not have the authority uh, to compel states to adhere to a common economic policy. And that's what you have in Europe, a conf loose confederation of sovereign states um, trying to operate a currency and they don't have the authority to tax or the authority to regulate to the extent that they need it. Um, so I think that uh, either the euro has to move towards a much stronger central government without these foolish rules about how much debt you can have, uh, for the various states, and it has to have much more expenditure power so that the central government can, as we do in the United States, can locate military bases, they can locate businesses, they can build uh, infrastructure um, in places that need further spending. This is, this is the history of the United States. Well, the history of infrastructure in the United States is the history of congressmen getting appropriations for their districts. And it's that kind of thing which doesn't exist in Europe. You have The central government doesn't have the power to tax and it doesn't have the power to spend. And without that, you can't manage an economy. But if you keep the euro as it is with the same conditions, 
the stronger manufacturing powers like Germany are, are inevitably going to drive out manufacturing and wealth creation on the poor countries and can continually force them into debt. So where does that leave the poor countries, the Spains, the, the Italys, the Portugals, the Ireland's, and the Greeks? Uh, if we don't castigate them as, you know, just irresponsible, I mean, these are human beings trying to work their way out of a tough situation, but the euro has constituted, it's a winner for, for Germany at the end of the day and really nobody else. It looks like the deal has broken down. The deal was for the poorer countries, you get a stable currency, which will allow you to grow and to develop. Look at what happened to Ireland. Tremendous boom as a result of joining the euro. Um, the poorer countries have a benefit, but then when things go bad, they take the brunt of it, and they've, they've lost everything that they've gained. Um, you can't have this. If, if Germany is going to run the euro, then it has to run it for everybody. And um, that they have not been willing to do. They have played a blame game, forgetting that the banks made those loans it may be that the Greeks and others were irresponsible in asking for the loans, but the bank managers who gave them those loans were just as irresponsible. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a situation in which the blame game is really not going to get one anywhere. Either you take the steps to make the central government capable of lifting the Eurozone out of a recession, or you don't. If you don't, then in, I think in the end it's going to break up. Uh, but if you do that, you're going to have to really change uh, the, the position of the central government, give it much more authority, and scrap a lot of the rules about uh, uh, debt ratios, which plague the, the Eurozone right now. All right, but the German, but Europeans would, would typically be suspicious of a central government which was strongly in, in, influenced by the Germans for historical reasons, if none others. They'd be basically saying the Germans protect their labor force, they have high wages, they're autarkic in a way, they export more than they import. Uh, that's something they, they don't inflate their currency. They remember the old inflationary days of Weimar. And they're simply going to outproduce and outcompete anybody on that continent. And yes, you can point to the Irish boom, but the Irish boom was essentially property-induced, you know, spending and corporate lowballing of taxes, which only gave the Irish a thrill for ten years or so. And now they're in war, they're probably as bad, in bad a shape as 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 the Greeks. So I don't know if I were the the Greek government, given the the circumstances. I feel I would be in a pretty powerful position because I could threaten to leave uh, the Eurozone. I haven't got much downdraft to, to suffer here. I could make a deal with uh, maybe Russia to backstop my currency. I, I, I'd issue currency on, on uh, my national assets so that I would, uh, I would have some kind of a solid backing. I would use the, the wealth, of, the infrastructure wealth of the Greek people to, to issue, in effect, greenbacks 
perhaps I get the Russians to uh, to guarantee it with uh, a flow of oil guaranteed to come in and out of Greece. And uh, my drachma would drop in, in, in price to the point where it would be the vacation destination of Europe again. I think it would be very dicey to try to cut a deal with the Russians right now. Uh, it would be dicey for the Greeks. It would be... Uh, it would irritate a lot of people who might otherwise um, be happy to see the Greeks um, pull something together. Uh, I just, I, I think the international situation with respect to Russia, Iran, oil prices generally today doesn't make that, uh, uh, it doesn't look very plausible. It's, it's, Maybe someone else could be found, but I don't know who. The problem is that the oil powers are in a difficult situation with the price of oil right now. So they're unlikely to really want to take on uh, another big responsibility, even if it would, even if it would otherwise be attractive. Um, so I think, I think, however, the Greeks could just say, we're going to go it alone. Um, and they might trying to do that because there is such antagonism to what they have been forced to go through. Well, the Greeks have asked the Germans to pay off their war debts. That, uh, that uh, It seems the prime minister has asked the Germans for payment of the money that they borrowed in World War II from the Greeks under duress. Uh, do you think he's serious about that or he's just tweaking the Germans? It's a it's a bargaining chip. It's a ploy. It's a it's a public relations stunt. Uh, um, is it serious? Well, maybe so. Uh, would have to ask uh, an historian of that era and of the treaties that ended the war, because if you remember, the Allies did not want to impose on Germany the kind of reparations which had been imposed on Germany at the end of World War I, uh, which had a, ter a terrible effect. Uh, so they, they, they weren't trying to, uh, to do that. Uh, so I don't know. I, 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 I'm all for the Greeks bringing up as many ideas, as many possibilities, as many publicity stunts, as many ways of dramatizing the situation as they can, um, and trying to win friends and influence. And I think the, that the Obama administration, and I think the administration of other leading countries, is going to push the Germans to, to try to make a deal. Um, but whether they'll succeed or not depends on the internal political situation in Germany and what the German public is willing to accept. And they've been very intransigent up to now. And I don't really see many signs of change. Okay. All right. Well, I don't want to beat this one to death. Just wanted to get your take on a very current issue, which really uh, is, is one that will lead into the first uh, new topic I want to talk to you about, okay, the ability of, uh, of these weaker countries to, in effect, compete with the stronger companies in terms of manufacturing. And we can even take America here. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask you is, why has our productivity as a nation 
for 30 years, strongly outpaced our wage increases, causing a gap which has given us an enormous amount of trouble in terms of uh, clearing goods. We have to borrow money to make up for, for the difference. Uh, there's a lack of bargaining power for American labor. And, and this gap is, is something that has to be financed externally, in effect, uh, to keep the system whole. Why such a divergence when, for 200 years before that, there was never this divergence between American productivity and, and American wages? Well, fortuitously, it was in the 1970s that containerization took place. The development of container shipping and container managing ports so that a ship moves in, it's unloaded container by container, the containers are put on flat cars, on rail, uh, moved and then moved from rail to trucks. Containerization reduced shipping costs to a fraction of their former level. At that same time, of course, computerization developed, which meant that you could control production processes, control them or monitor them in real time from New York, whether they were in Taiwan or Malaysia or Mexico City or wherever they were in the world. You could control your production and you could monitor it and you know exactly what is going on. And you can ship back and forth at a very small price. What that meant was that the labor force that you were that you were looking to hire was all over the world. It was the global labor force. You, you had to move your production facilities, but you could pack them up in containers and move them. And you could bring them back. You could set up factories, assembly plants, uh, um, production lines, anywhere in the world, monitor them, and pay very, very low wages. Um, at the same time, all the developments in computers and computer science were revolutionizing the production system as well. New materials, new ways of processing, new forms of organization, all developed engineering of production became, um, well, it, it, it dispensed with a great deal of labor. So on the one hand, you have automation type of things, robots and so on, displacing labor. You have production facilities being moved offshore to cheap labor overseas. And you have um, the management of production facilities being organized globally using the new information technologies. It, it in effect, destroyed the bargaining position of labor. Um, and this destruction of its bargaining position has meant that it's very, very hard for labor to push for a wage. Now, one major further thing. Since 1980, there has only been one presidential term during which the economy has approximated a boom, full employment. And that was President Clinton's second term. The first term, remember, we were coming out of the 
Bush senior recession. Um, Reagan's two terms, unemployment was still pretty high. There was a, a, a slump at the beginning, then there was a, a, a financial crash later, and then there was a real crash uh, under Bush 1. And then you have Clinton 1 recovery, and then you have Clinton 2, a boom. So since 1980, we have had only about two and a half years, two and a half to three years of real boom conditions. And during that time, real wages did rise. So since 1980 to the present, we have had all of these developments, globalization and technological developments, and we have had weak aggregate demand. And the result is that wages haven't moved. But again, that being the case, and we have weak aggregate demand, we simply plug that weakness with loans to make up for the weakness in the purchasing power of the American workers. And also with this globalization, we can't get other countries who are exporting to us to sell to their own people at the same time giving them the ability to build up their capital structures and us having to pay for their products, automated and, and, and high techno technology notwithstanding, we've had to pay for all of that essentially by borrowing money uh, and, and borrowing money from the people who are selling us the product. This is not grounds for a stable system. So how do we resolve the fact that we, we've always been a high-wage nation for 200 years and somehow we've managed, even with that, to have a positive a surplus. Well, now we can't do it. Why? Well, um, I think the main thing is the weakness of demand. I, and unfortunately, the weakness of aggregate demand is based on two, two things. One is mistaken ideas mistaken economic ideas, really badly mistaken economic ideas. And the other is um, a lot of people don't want a boom. They're afraid of inflation. They're afraid of wages rising. A lot of employers just really don't want to pay higher wages. Um, why not? Well, there's a cost, uh, and cost of doing business, it makes it, if you have high wages, your profits are lower and your margin of risk is, is higher. So uh, there's every reason to expect that. And if the economy is not booming, there won't be much wage pressure. Uh, that's a lot of employers. And Financial companies, banks, finance generally, and a lot of people who have portfolios don't want to see inflation um, because if interest rates uh, are given, then inflation means the real rate of interest is lower. Uh, so you don't want inflation. Um, so antagonism to inflation and uh, antagonism to wage increases means that a lot of people are resist economic policies that will lead to a boom. Of course, 
if you're if you're looking for a job, of course, if you want a a um, an attractive and enjoyable life, you would like to have an economic boom. Everybody feels better. Everybody has more money. Everybody has more goods. It's it, generally speaking, boom conditions are popular, but there is this underlying resistance. So I think that on the one hand, we have been in an era of largely conservative governments since, since the 60s, really. Um, and these largely conservative governments uh, have not engendered economic booms. You run up debt, it basically leads to more profits for corporations. Running up debt, deficit spending, almost as a direct pipeline to corporate profits. So even if you have monopoly capital, and, and yes. so I mean, it, it's a virtuous circle for, uh, let's say, multilateral corporations. But how do you explain the uh, German experience where labor productivity and labor wages keep in sync? How are the Germans able to do that? Germany is a labor shortage economy. It always has been. Uh, it, it, it was even prior to World War II, World War I, and, and then again prior to World War II, Germany was always looking for additional labor. And following World War II, Germany imported a huge number of workers from Yugoslavia and then from Turkey. And it is still has imported workers from Turkey. Um, well, to make a long story short, a labor shortage economy is a high-wage economy. And uh, that has been the case with, with Germany. And in order to import workers from abroad, Germany made sure that it had um, extensive social services. It didn't want to import workers that then created social problems. Given the United States has so much unemployment now, regardless of the reasons, why wouldn't it employ what it historically employed in building itself up in the 1800s to the 1900s? Why wouldn't it selectively use tariffs to uh, control exports and imports so that the uh, rate of outflow of jobs, even though you had technological unemployment, would have been tolerable uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the globalization over a period of time? Why was that off the table? Well, because we were the number one nation, the, the driver of the world economy, the manager of the world economy. We built up our position behind a tariff wall, um, as everybody does. Um, protection protects. Uh, you want to develop industries, you better protect them. Otherwise, if you start an industry and it looks like there's going to be a big market for it, somebody who has already developed the technology and the production facilities will just move in and export to your market and you'll never get a chance to, to develop. So protection is a strategy for industrialization. But once we had achieved industrialization and... Europe was in ruins, there was no competition. The United States had to be the world leader, had to build up. Uh, we 
far from having protection, we provided in the Marshall Plan and in all kinds of loans and all kinds of special deals um, the capital to build new production facilities to build these nations up. So far from protecting ourselves, we were creating our own future competition. Let's go to oil as the key uh, resource in the world today. It's, it's pretty clear that the price of oil uh, is the linchpin of uh, most economies, most modern economies. It's also pretty clear that the price is much higher, at least until the last few months. It's been much higher for the last 10 or 20 years than supply and demand considerations would warrant. Why do you think that was so, or do you agree that that was so? And if so, uh, who benefited from that? The, the first thing about uh, oil is that it is it always has been uh, a managed market. The seven sisters prior to uh, the end of the 60s and the outbreak of war in the Middle East and, and so on, uh, the seven sisters, the great oil companies, managed the price of oil, managed the allocation of oil uh, very, very, very precisely. There's some excellent studies of this. Now, after the, uh, co the, the, the cat catastrophes, in a sense, in the Middle East and in uh, uh, the collapse of the Bretton Woods system and, and uh uh, the fluctuations in the dollar in the early 70s, um, the oil market changed and the giant private firms were no longer the possessors of the rights to the oil in the ground. That had become uh, the, the prerogative of nation states. And as a result, OPEC was formed by these a number of these nation states to manage the market again. Now, this worked, but not so well. And there's always been a problem for OPEC, and that problem is Saudi Arabia, which is so has so much oil and is capable of pumping a great deal of oil or stopping. Uh, and it has large reserves, so it can actually stop. And even though the kingdom is totally dependent on oil revenues, it doesn't matter because it's built up uh, a, a huge portfolio of funds which it can draw on. So it can pump or not pump. And that means that it can play a kind of role of a kind of a balancing wheel. OPEC can go a long way towards setting prices, but it finally has to be okayed by Saudi Arabia. And of course, Saudi Arabia is totally dependent on the United States. Um, now, this is an arrangement with a very big problem in it, and that is that Saudi Arabia is also a fundamentalist uh, Islamic country with a very primitive form of fundamentalism, and uh, it is a discriminatory uh, e economy. The treatment of women is terrible. It's not democratic at all. 
Um, and uh, it is also in, engages worldwide in various kinds of activities that are really contrary to the interests of the United States. Um, and it's no accident uh, that so many of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Um, it also seems that a number of leading Saudi Arabian uh, members of the royal family or government um, contributed money to uh, al-Qaeda at various ways, which they may have done for many internal political reasons. So there's, there, there are many problems with, with the role of Saudi Arabia, uh, politically and economically. And um, the result, in short, is that there does not seem to be a good deal going with regard to the price of oil. It has, there has to be, the price of oil is not, it, yeah, sure, it's set by supply and demand, but supply and demand are regulated. They're regulated with political considerations in mind. A high price of oil means for the United States, we will become oil independent. We will, we, a high price of oil will mean enough shale production of oil and natural gas that we will go move into a period in which we are the number one producer of oil as well as natural gas in the world. We're completely independent and we, this will last for 15 or 20 years. Uh, fantastic. Um, except that it's very dirty. Uh, so... There's, there's a real, real environmental problem, much more severe environmental problem, I think, than is widely acknowledged, because I really do think that, that uh, uh, the ability to control the effects of extensive fracturing is something that we don't know and geologists don't know. Uh, but it would be put the United States in an amazing political position. I think the Saudis have dropped the price to try to put out the shale oil people right now in the short term? Many people say that, um, and it may be true. I don't know that we, we really we know. It, it does have that effect. Uh, it also has a very severe effect on uh, Iran and on Russia. Um, and um, both of those are uh, countries that Saudi Arabia would like to see suffer some pressure. Also Venezuela, which is a very high cost producer, and Canadian tar sands are high cost. So the, the effect of uh, a low price of oil on high cost producers is, well, that's the effect that the Saudis themselves actually say. That's what they want to see happen. They do not want to see high-cost producers uh, being kept in business um, by higher oil prices, which are the result of curbing Saudi production so that Saudi Arabia loses markets. Why should Saudi Arabia lose markets in order to, in effect, underwrite these high-cost producers. So we've got a scissors effect here, short-term, long-term. 
Low prices, boom. High prices, no alternatives to carbon fuels. So somewhere in, in between is a golden period, a golden place. And I don't know where that might be. What do you think? My, my feeling is that a uh, price of oil that is much below, say, $80 a barrel is dangerous for solar power and wind power uh, and other alternative energies, uh, if it's much below that. If, uh, uh, and, and that is a, a sort of tolerable level, produce a level of gas prices that we can and have lived with. Um, but lower is very desirable for the American economy right at this moment because it frees up spending for other things and that is leading, is contributing to the current uptick in the economy. I want to shift to taxation. And of course, we Georgians are anti-monopolists and the world is a monopoly capitalist world at the present time. And we would argue that we'd like to see more taxing on inelastic factors of production and less taxing on elastic factors of production. Your comments on that, in general, as a, as a general proposition to run a capitalist world? As a general proposition, <clears throat> uh, taxing inelastic factors as a general proposition, it sounds very good. Uh, you're not going to cause production to be inhibited by that. Uh, <clears throat> and if they are inelastic and immobile, like land, um, you can't take them overseas. You can take a factory overseas, but you can't take the land overseas. Uh, so there's, it, it's a good strategy. The question is, um, will it raise enough revenue? Um, will it be easy enough to manage um, uh, because of local government, state government, federal government? I mean, you've got three levels of government, but that really doesn't um, in, encompass the whole thing. You have, you talk about local government, it isn't just the village. Uh, it's, there's the county, uh, there's the water district, um, there may be separately a sewage district, there may be some kind of rivers and harbors arrangement if you're near the coast. Uh, all these levels and levels and levels of government um, all have an interest in sharing in the tax and in administering it and then assessing it, and many of them already have a position that they don't want to give up. So sometimes it's, it could be very difficult to negotiate a clear deal. It, it ought to be very simple, but I'm just saying that it probably very often isn't. Now, as I would, you could argue that the monopoly capitalist corporations are so large, they're not responsive to pricing signals and so forth, if you tax the excess or you broke them up, would the capitalist economy work better? And, and the second question would be, does, does competitive capitalism, by its very nature, evolve and emerge into monopoly capital? Taking that, that question first, 
a few years ago with two former students, I did an article um, on just that, um, making use of uh, the new technique called agent-based modeling. Um, and we effectively set up uh, markets which we had firms that followed certain strategies and we had a large number of firms and they competed and did various things and um, what basically happened was that the large firms gradually absorbed the the um, uh, smaller firms and grew still larger and then sort of balanced out at a point where the firms were in effect too large to fight each other. They, could, they were too damaging. And um, I think this is a very good story. There, in, in 1896 or 1900, there were literally hundreds of automobile firms. By 1960, there were, what, four uh, in the United States. <clears throat> and you can go through many other industries and you find very similar patterns of a large number of small firms varying, operating different technologies, looking for different markets, uh, but all competing with one another. And they gradually get absorbed and end up with a few small firms. I mean, a few large, small number of large firms. That's what I mean. But the United States during that period, up until the 1890s, with all those small firms, although they were emerging to large firms, did become the leading manufacturing country in the world. So during this emergent process, competitive capitalism at least moved the technology and the, and the, and the growth to a very, very high level. Then as it morphs into, as you have pointed out, the, the uh, large uh, few firms, that are not so responsive to price, but that will vary their volumes rather than price. Now you get quite a different animal here. Over a certain period, this form of consolidation through competition, leading to a small number of large firms, has a, a probably fairly strong net beneficial aspect and two things, a minor one of removing duplication and a major one of taking advantage of economies of scale. And that, therefore, the loss of responsiveness to market signals, a competitive market should be pretty responsive to market signals, the, the loss of that is outweighed by the gains from economies of scale. But once the market is consolidated at this high level, maybe there aren't that many more economies of scale to obtain. And it is a very powerful, politically powerful, economically powerful institution, which is not going to be responsive to much of anything. It's going to take a great deal to move it. And um, maybe we have also seen that in our big corporations in, in the last 30 or 40 years. They aren't responsive to politics. They aren't responsive 
to economic pressures. They may be responsive to global competitive pressures, but pretty soon they're going to sink their position in the global economy and they won't, they won't face any more competitors because uh, they will have either taken them over or allied with them. All right, well, we'll end it on this because I have more topics. But you and I could talk for hours, it seems. It's a pleasure. So it's, it's, it's just great. We'll have to, we'll continue with the next time where I wanted to talk about economic theory and, and the evolution yeah. of that. And uh, Andy, it's a pleasure to talk with you and a pleasure to talk for the Henry George School. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.